through a strange set of circumstances, we managed to record this conversation with James Baldwin immediately after both of us attended that now famous meeting between a group of Mr. Baldwin's friends and Attorney General Robert Kennedy. I believe much of the emotion of that historic occasion spilled over into our conversation in an attempt to ease the tension I started by asking him to dig back and tell us something about his childhood and his growing up. My mind is someplace else, really. But to think back on it, I was born in Harlem, Harlem Hospital, you know, and we grew up, um, first house I remember was on Park Avenue, which is not the American Park Avenue, or maybe it is the American Park Avenue. Uptown Park Avenue. Uptown Park Avenue, where the railroad tracks are. We used to play on the roof, and um, in the, I can't call it an alley, but uh, near the river. Mm -hmm. It was a kind of dump, garbage dump. And that was the first, those were the first scenes I remember. I remember my father had trouble keeping us alive. There were nine of us, and um, I was the oldest, so I took care of the kids. And um, dealt with Daddy. Might have sounded much better now. Part of his problem was he couldn't feed his kids. But I was a kid and I didn't know that. And um, he was very religious, very rigid. He kept us together, I must say. And when I look back on it, after all, it was nearly 40 years ago that I was born. I think back of on my growing up. And walks that same block today because it's still there. And think of the kids on that block now. I'm aware that something terrible has happened, which is very hard to describe. I am in all but no technical legal fact, a southerner. My father was born in the south. No, my mother was born in the south. And if they had waited, you no know, two more seconds, I might have been born in the south. But that means that I was raised by a family whose, which, whose roots were essentially rural, and um, southern, rural. southern rural, and whose relationship to the church was very direct because it was the only means they had of expressing their pain and their despair. But 20 years later, the moral authority, which was present in the Negro Northern community when I was growing up, has vanished. And people talk about progress, and I look at Harlem, which I really know. I know it like I know my hand. And it is much worse there today than it was when I was growing up. Would you say this is true of the schools, too? It's much worse in the schools. What school did you go to? I went to PS 24. I went to uh, PS 139. 139. Yeah. We are brother, fellow <laughs> alumni. I yeah. went to and I didn't like a lot of my teachers, but I had a couple of teachers who were very nice to me. One was a Negro teacher. And I remember, I, I was, I, you asked me these questions, so I'm trying to answer you. I remember coming home from school, and this, uh, you could guess how young I must have been. And my mother asked me, if my teacher was called a white, and I said she was a little bit called a little bit white, because she was about your color. <laughs> and 
As a matter of fact, I was right. That's part of the dilemma of being an American Negro. That one is a little bit colored and a little bit white. And not only in terms, in physical terms, but in the head and in the heart. And there are days, this is one of them, when you wonder what your role is in this country and what your future is in it. How precisely are you going to reconcile yourself to your situation here and how you're going to communicate to the vast, heedless, unthinking, cruel white majority that you are here. And to be here means that you can't be anywhere else. I'm terrified at the moral apathy, the death of the heart, which is happening in my country. These people have deluded themselves for so long that they really don't think I'm human. I had basis on their conduct, not on what they say. And this means that they have become in themselves moral monsters. Well, Jim, I can see... It's a terrible indictment. Yes, I... I mean every word I say. Well, we are confronted with the racial confrontation in America today. I think the pictures of dogs in the hands of human beings attacking other human beings... In a free is, country. In a free country. In the middle of the 20th century. This Birmingham is clearly not restricted to Birmingham, as you so eloquently pointed out. What do you think can be done to change, to use your term, the moral fiber of America? I think the one has got to find some way of putting the present administration of this country on the spot. One has got to force somehow from Washington a moral commitment, not to the Negro people, but to the life of this country. It doesn't matter any longer, and I'm speaking for myself, for Jimmy Baldwin, and I think I'm speaking for a great many other Negroes too. It doesn't matter any longer what you do to me. You can put me in jail, you can kill me, but by the time I was 17, you had done everything that you could do to me. The problem now is, how are you going to save yourselves? It was a great shock to me. I want to say this on the air. The Attorney General did not know. You mean the Attorney General of the United States? Mr. Robert Mr. Kennedy. Robert. Didn't know that I would have trouble convincing my nephew to go to Cuba, for example, to liberate the Cubans in defense of a government which now says it is, done, is doing everything it can to which cannot liberate me. Now, there are 20 million people in this country. 
And you can't put them all in jail. I know how my nephew feels. I know how I feel. I know how the cats in the barbershop feel. A boy last week, who was 16 in San Francisco, told me on television, thank God we got him to talk. Maybe somebody will start to listen. He said, I've got no country, I've got no flag. Now, he's only 16 years old. And I couldn't say you do. I don't have any evidence to prove that he does. They were tearing down his house because San Francisco is engaging, as all, most northern cities now are engaged, in something called urban renewal, which means moving the Negroes out. Getting, it means Negro removal. That is what it means. And the federal government is, a, is, is, is an accomplice to this fact. Now, this, we're talking about human beings. There's not such a thing as a monolithic wall or, you know, some abstraction called the Negro problem. These are Negro boys and girls who at 16 and 17 don't believe the country means anything that it says, don't feel they have any place here on the basis of the performance of the entire country. But now, Jim... No, am I exaggerating? No, I certainly could not say that you're exaggerating. But there is this picture of a group of young Negro college students in the South coming from colleges uh, where the whole system seem to conspire to keep them from having courage, integrity, clarity, and the willingness to take the risk which they have been taking for these last three or four years. Could you react to the student nonviolent movement which has made such an impact on America, which has affected both Negroes and whites? And seem to have jolted them out of the lethargy of tokenism and moderation. How do you account for this? Yeah. Well, of course, one of the things I think that happened, Ken, really, is that in the first place, the Negro has never been as docile as white Americans wanted to believe. That was a myth. We were not singing and dancing down the levee. We were trying to keep alive. We were trying to survive a very brutal system. The nigger has never been happy in his place. What those kids, first of all, prove, first of all, that they prove that. They come from a long line of fighters. And what they also prove, I'm getting, I want to get to your point, really. What they also prove is not that the Negro has changed, but that the country has arrived at a place where it can no longer contain the revolt. It can no longer, as it could do once, Let's say I was a Negro college president, and I needed a new chemistry lab. So I was a Negro leader. I was a Negro leader because the white man said I was. And I came to get a new chemistry lab. Please, sir. And the tacit price I paid for the chemistry lab was to control the people I represented. And now, I can't do that. When the boy said this afternoon, we were talking to a Negro student this afternoon, who's been through it all, who's half dead, who's about 25. Jerome, Jerome Smith. Smith. And that's an awful lot to ask a person to bear. The country sat back in admiration of all those kids for three or four or five years, and has not lifted a finger to help them. Now, we all knew, I know you knew and I knew too, that a moment was coming when we couldn't guarantee, then no one can guarantee that he won't reach the breaking point. 
you know. You can only survive so many beatings, so much humiliation, so much despair, so many broken promises. Before something gives, human beings are not by nature nonviolent. Those children had to go, had to pay a terrible price in discipline, in moral discipline, and in an interior effort of courage which the country cannot imagine because it still thinks Gary Cooper, for example, was a man. I mean his image. I have nothing against him, you know, him. You said uh, something that the, that you cannot expect them to remain you constantly nonviolent. No, you can't. You can't. And furthermore, there were always these students that we're talking about, a minority. The students we're talking about, when I was in Tallahassee, there were some students protesting. But there were many, 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 many more students who had given up, who were desperate, and whom Malcolm X can reach, for example, much more easily than I can. What do you mean? Um, when, well, Ma when Malcolm tells them, when Malcolm tells them, in effect, is that they should be proud of being black, and God knows that they should be. That's a very important thing to hear in a country which assures you you should be ashamed of it. Of course, what he, in order to do this, what he does is destroy a truth and invent a history. What he does is say, you're better because you're black. Well, of course, that isn't true. That's the trouble. Do you think that this is an appealing uh, approach and that uh, the black Muslims in preaching black supremacy uh, seek to exploit the frustration of the Negro? I don't think, put it as simply as I can, and without trying now to investigate whatever the motives of any given Muslim leader may be, it is the only movement in the country which we can call grassroots. I hate to say that, but it's true. Because it is only when Malcolm talks, or one of the Muslim ministers talk, they articulate for all the Negro people who hear them, who listen to them, they articulate their suffering. The suffering which has been in this country so long denied. That's Malcolm's great authority over any of his audiences. He corroborates their reality. He tells them that they really exist. You know? Jim, do you think that this is more a more effective appeal than the appeal of Martin Luther King? It's much more sinister because it is much more effective. It's much more effective because it is, after all, comparatively easy to invest a population with a false morale by giving them a, a false sense of superiority. And it will always break down in a crisis. It's the history of Europe, simply. It's one of the reasons we're in this terrible place. It's one of the reasons that we have five cops standing on a black woman's neck in Birmingham. Because at some point they believed, they were taught and they believed that they were better than other people because they were white. It leads to a moral bankruptcy. It is inevitable. It cannot but lead there. But the point, my point here is that the country is for the first time worried about the Muslim movement. It shouldn't be worried about the Muslim movement. That's not the problem. The problem is to, to eliminate the conditions which breed the Muslim movement. Well, uh, I'd like to come back to uh, get some of your thoughts about the relationship between Martin Luther King's appeal that is effectively yes. nonviolent and his philosophy of disciplined love for the oppressor. But Martin, and what do you think this 
What is the relationship between this and the reality of the Negro masses? Well, to leave Martin out of it for a moment. Martin's very rare, very great man. Martin's rare for two reasons. Partly because just, just because he is. And because he's a real Christian. And he really believes in nonviolence. He's arrived at something in himself. Which permits him, permits him, allows him to do it. And he still has great moral authority in the South. There's none whatever in the North. Poor Martin has gone through God knows what kind of hell to, make, to awaken the American conscience. But Martin has reached the end of his rope. There's some things Martin can't do. Martin's only one man. Martin can't solve the nation's central problem by himself. There are lots of people, lots of black people I mean now, who don't go to church no more and don't listen to Martin, you know. And who anyway are themselves produced by civilization, which is always glorified violence, unless the Negro had the gun. So that Martin is undercut by the performance of the country. The country is only concerned about nonviolence if it seems that I'm going to get violent. But I'm worried about, about, about nonviolence if it's some Alabama sheriff. Jim, what do you see deep in the recesses of your own mind as the future of our nation? And I ask that question in that way because I think that the future of the Negro and the future of the nation are linked. They're insoluble. Yeah. Now, what do you see? Uh, are you essentially optimistic or pessimistic? And I really don't want to put words in your mouth because what I really want to find out is what you really believe. Well, I'm both glad and sorry you asked me that question. I'll do my best to answer it. I can't be a pessimist because I'm alive. To be a pessimist means that you have agreed that human life is an academic matter. So I'm forced to be an optimist. I'm forced to believe that we can survive whatever we must survive. But the Negro in this country, the future of the Negro in this country is precisely as bright or as dark as the future of the country. It is entirely up to the American people and our representatives. It is entirely up to the American people whether or not they're going to face and deal with and embrace this stranger whom they maligned so long. What white people have to do is try to find out in their own hearts why it was necessary to have a nigger in the first place. Because I'm not a nigger. I'm a man. But if you think I'm a nigger, means you need it. The question you've got to ask yourself, the white population of this country has got to ask itself, north and south, because it's one country, and for a Negro, there's no difference in the north and the south. There's just a, you know, a difference in the way they, in a way they castrate you. But, that's, but the fact of the castration is the American fact. If I'm not a nigger here, and the, you invented him, you, the white people, invented him, then you've got to find out why. Well... And the future of the country depends on that, whether or not it's able to ask that question. As a Negro and as an American, I can only hope that America has the strength and the capacity... The moral strength. ...to ask and answer that question in affirmative and constructive way. To face that question. Thank you very much.
تمیل کردن.